Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Thursday. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. We started our opponent preview series a little bit later this year, but started it nonetheless with Kentucky and LSU today. I talked to Sean Smith of GoBigBlueCountry.com and then old pal Brody Miller, who covers LSU for The Athletic, to get a better idea about the Wildcats and Tigers. It's a Big Cats Thursday on this podcast, I guess. Why Kentucky and LSU, you say? That's not the order the schedule goes. You're absolutely correct. Those are the first two guys to reply to my Twitter DMs. So there you have it. That's a little inside baseball on the Rippy Rights content schedule and uh, the cogs that keep this machine turning. So anyway, we're going to try to get through all eight of Ole Miss's conference opponents, and I might do a Georgia Tech thing if I have time. Uh, with due respect to Troy in Central Arkansas and Tulsa, I'm probably not going to spend a whole lot of time getting a better idea of where those programs are at. So anyway, these are the first two. We got six more to go. I'll probably pair them up in three more episodes before the season gets here. But I think you'll enjoy the conversation at both. Uh, we talked a lot regarding Kentucky opening up the offense with Will Levis. They bring in a guy from the Shanahan tree, run a more pro-style offense, maybe not at, be as run-heavy as years past. And then with Brody, we talked about a very fascinating LSU team with not a whole lot of expectations, a decent amount of talent, a lot of transfer portal additions, and what the hell they're going to do at quarterback. We recorded this before Miles Brennan walked away from football, but if I remember our conversation correctly, it was actually kind of eerie. Uh, us forecasting like hey if he doesn't win the starting jobs he's just gonna walk away and I think Brody's answer was basically yes and look what happened anyway interesting conversation with both of these guys I think you'll enjoy it and get a better idea of what uh should be two pretty important games for the Rebels this year before we get to that though I wanted to remind you podcast is brought to you by Mims Insurance Matt Mims is an independent insurance agent based in Oxford He's going to help you find the best rate possible. Everything is expensive right now. Gas is expensive. Food's expensive. Everything. Inflation's at an all-time high. Not a political pod, just a fact of life. You don't need to settle and lose further money and leave money on the table when it comes to your insurance. Matt Mims is an independent insurance agent based in Oxford. His whole job is you call him. He shops your quote around, whatever it is you need insured, house, car, boat if it's a boat congrats on your boat that's pretty sick anything you need insured you tell him he shops around to 10 different agencies finds the best price finds the best fit for you and boom job's done takes the hassle out of insurance he's helped so many people across the state of mississippi operations are booming he just got a little bit of help hired another agent over there in the uh in vicksburg things are exploding because people trust matt mims and you should too he's a good friend of mine i wouldn't send you to someone I don't trust, wouldn't do business with someone I don't trust. He's going to make getting things insured easy for you. All you have to do is call him at 601-218-7854. That's 601-218-7854. That's his cell phone number. Answers all the time. That is not some uh, you know automated line he's going to pick up, and he's going to help you out. Tell him I sent you. He will get you hooked up. That is MIMS Insurance there in based in Oxford, but all across the state of Mississippi. His reach is from the coast all the way up into the Memphis area. He can help you out. Whatever you may need, go check him out. Mims Insurance there in Oxford. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. 
the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. You need to check these guys out. They're the best in the business. Football season is right around the corner. Don't lose money this year. Go on right online right now. Buy the season pass for both the NFL and college football and profit with Skybox. Make this one an actual fun one. Get a little expendable income going over the next couple of months because they're going to lead you to profit more consistently than yourself, your own brain, or anyone else in the industry. You will lose money in the long run unless you go with Skybox. It's pretty much that simple. They hit it 60% on the NFL last year. They're absolutely crushing it in NASCAR. They went plus 34.85 units in a weekend in NASCAR, including a plus 2,500 outright winner a couple weeks ago. Mark Harris and the guys at Skybox NASCAR are crushing it. And pretty soon, for Skybox customers, NASCAR is about to come free. Become free. Just a free part of you signing up. How about that? Free 34-unit weekends on deck for you in the future. They're the best in the business. You need to go to skyboxsportspicks.com. Check out the picks package. Find the best one that fits your price range. You can try it for a day, week, month, all sports, particular sport. I'd recommend just go with the year-long all-access pass. It's going to pay for itself and then some. And then, boom, you're on the way to watching sports and profiting for a change and not having the bookie text you on Sunday night asking you to square up, adding to your Sunday scaries. You have a couple more days. So through August 17th, you can any if you buy a picks package on the site, if you buy the football package or the or excuse me, if you buy the NASCAR package through August 17th, which it's about to be free, so only a couple days left on that one, you will be entered into a chance to win the NFL and NCAA four-week package for free. So you're going to get a month of NCAA and NFL picks if you're selected in this drawing for free. So before Skybox NASCAR becomes free to the people, you can buy a short four-week pass, probably get reimbursed on that, and then enter into a drawing to win the NFL and NCAA football packages. Check them out. They're still running the code natty for 50 percent off and the rippy code r-i-p-p-e-e gets you 20 percent off go check them out if you have any questions holler at me they're the best in the business skybox sports picks all right leadoff hitter brody miller we're gonna preview lsu right here all right we now welcome on um athletic lsu beat writer brody miller uh resident new orleans a fantastic mustache we have going it's a goddamn shame this is uh, audio only how are you my friend I am doing well, man. Thanks for having me. This is my favorite tradition we've done every year. So, but as as we joked before the show, I feel like the last two years I always had a drink, and this year I do not have a drink, so I'm really failing the listeners. Exactly, it's it's a sign of what the state yeah. of the LSU program. You you don't need that midweek glass of wine just to deal <laughs> with all the just ridiculous stuff you've had to cover for the last two years. That was actually like my top two notes of what I wanted to get to today. Of just like. How is it being calm? How is it having some sense of normalcy for the last like six months? And it was funny. We were talking before we started recording, like the last two, three times we've done a pod, we've ended up just going over an hour, literally just to cover everything. And like, I always lie to you about how long I'm going to keep you. I think I can like hold you to the whole half hour. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But I don't think we'll look up in like an hour and 10 minutes and be like, oh man, we're still going at this. (laughs) Because there's just, there really is a sense of calmness, right? There's not, every, I don't even know how to describe it, everything. Uh, you know, Ogeron's gone. You've kind of got the NCA investigation and the review for the most part. What are things like there with the program? It's got to be different. Yeah, no, I think it's a good way to put it, the way you framed it, right? I, I think it is just so much of this hire was rooted in just like Scott Woodward wanting to just remove the volatility that had become LSU football. Like my old co-host, T-Bob Bear had that great line that I love that he's like, 
LSU football is Greece. And I love that because it's Greece's romance, but rising and falling and all that stuff. And it's like, that's part of the LSU adventure. And I think Scott Woodward kind of looks at it as, yeah, three straight coaches won a title, but all three, like two of those coaches weren't great coaches and had constant volatility of like, yeah, you won a title, but you also go seven and five, five and five, eight and four, like this constant hill and valley. And it's like LSU is considered a top five job nationally. It's this sports car that quite frankly has succeeded in spite of itself. I think to some extent the last 17 years or 18 years. So I really do think so much of the Kelly hire was just like, a guy who knows how to run a program. And I hate the term CEO. I really do. But sometimes it's accurate. I think it's used poorly most of the time. But Brian, like Brian Kelly is next to Nick Saban, the best in college football at that organizational top down mechanical, just knowing how to process all the stuff kind of coach. And I think that's the thing to answer your actual question. What I would say I've seen, I think from these last, you know, eight, nine months is just, a stability, a working on accountability. You know, I think you lost accountability in those running here. You lost, I mean, you, you just these little process things, things being thought through, data, all this stuff, where I don't think this is going to be, this team has tons of questions. Sure, it's not boring, right? But, you know, there's 15 transfers, it's a weird roster, all that. Plenty we can talk about, but things just seem more grounded. They seem more put in reality so yeah i think the day-to-day of covering brian kelly is a lot more stable than the ogeron era it's a good way to put it and like he you you mentioned he is mr stability he wins double digit games every year he's at cincinnati uh you know the wikipedia page has them at zero and zero the year they played for the national title game i don't even remember that (laughs) NCAA investigation but obviously double digit ever golson yeah yeah, and just like three, I mean, he went 10, 12, and 11 his last three, or excuse me, 10, 12, 11, 10, and 11 his last five years. So he's been a half decade of double-digit wins. The guy really is a machine, and that's another piece of it I wanted to get to is like, you know, everyone, it's a, whenever you have like a northern Midwestern guy come down to the SEC and it's not an SEC guy, everyone's like, oh, cultural fit. And like, yeah. I get it in the case of Brian Harson because you're like, is this guy a Scientologist? What's going on here? It's been volatile <laughs> from the start. Like, that's a weird cultural fit. Yeah. Like Brian Kelly, it's like, this guy actually just wins. Like, and reading, you know, you or listening to anyone that does radio down there or podcasts or whatever, the whole cultural fit thing seems very stupid and overblown based off him faking a Southern accent to appease some people yeah. at a basketball game. Like, culture is winning and so if you win you fit into that culture so like how nauseating has it been to kind of like answer the culture questions and all that to where it's like this guy just knows how to win at a high major program like what is this culture crap nauseating is a good way to put it but hey i get it like i get it lsu is probably on that short list of jobs where like it is just a different world right like louisiana is a different place so i do get where it's coming from that it's like yeah that is weird or this whole thing of like going from Notre Dame, prissy, like, you know, everything's noble, all that to like the SEC, wild, wild west, throwing golf balls and stuff. Like, yeah, like I do get it. I just think you're to your point, it's misguided. And, and I think the best example I can give of this is so much as LSU culture, LSU culture, LSU culture. Everything that LSU has built themselves up as the LSU culture for the last 23 years. You know where that came from? That culture was built by an outsider named Nick Saban who had nothing to do with the South. I mean, West Virginia, I guess, but still. Like, this this stuff is nonsense. It's also like, and you see this at so many schools, right? Like, I'm an Indiana alum. 
the last 40 years, 50 years has been like Bob Knight is IU. He went to Ohio State. <laughs> like, yeah. like he wasn't an IU guy. Like you're just chasing a ghost. Or Michigan's a good example. Like they're just chasing this thing that was created by an outsider. So uh, sorry, long-winded way of saying. I think a little bit the culture stuff. Yeah, first off, culture's winning. I think a lot of the Kelly hire, and I really think if Scott Woodward's a guy who keeps everything close to the vest. I think if he was really honest with you, I think so much of this hire is they need the next guy to reset the culture. Because again, I really can't say this enough. LSU has been good for 20 years, but it's been good. And I, as somebody who covers this program closely, I really promise you, everything they've done with the last two staffs has still been built in that image of the infrastructure Saban built. It is, this is how Saban did things. So this is how we do things. It was just, he just built this incredible program. And it's been so well built, by the way, they could kind of do that for 20 years. And I think it's like, Scott Woodward's like, hey, we need a, someone else in there who knows how to make a culture. So yeah, I think the culture stuff's silly. But anyway, I know what you're actually asking. Like, I think people actually like him down here. Like, he yeah. is more personable than people give him credit for. I'm not like hyping up Brad, Brian Kelly or anything, but like, he is a guy who's kind of charming when he actually talks to you. I'm not saying he's funny, but he makes jokes. Like, I think every recruit that's been on campus is like, yeah, he's much different, like, different than I thought he'd be. I don't think he's this just hard ass guy. And honestly, talking to everyone who works for him, I, I think he's a hard ass at times, sure. But he's actually, I think most would tell you, one of the easiest people to work for. Because, and and I think Saban is hard to work for, right? Kelly, it's more like, this is, uh, here's what I'm asking of you. Like, and it's clear, like, you know, communication's clear. This is your job, do it. But if you do it, go home to your kids, man. Like, go golf, you know, like, so I don't, I think a lot of the perceptions of him are just slightly off. So yeah, I think cultural fit, man. It's like, if you win, you are a God here, who cares? And you missing, like, mentioned like the hissy prissy, like Notre Dame side of it, where he kind of had to be in that image for a while. I just wonder, like, so you had like the cringeworthy recruiting videos, but at least he's like putting himself out there and kind of yeah. like, what's this guy up to? Like, is he having a midlife crisis? You got like Kiffin dunking on it. But I just wonder if part of him was like, you know, with NIL, a lot of this stuff is above board now. Why not yeah. just go let it fly in the South? Like, I'm going to have the backing. All of this stuff is legal now. It's not like we're going to get investigated for anything less for, like, idiots. Like, yeah. why do we have to, you know, pretend with this right-way image anymore? Let me go let it fly where they absolutely want to let it fly to no end. I wonder if that was kind of the part of the appeal of it, outside of it being, you know, LSU. No, there's absolutely something to that. First off, on the recruiting thing, it's like, again, I hate that I'm, like, defending him nonstop, but – the recruiting thing is like you had five-star quarterback Walker Howard being like, coach, come dance. You're not going to yeah. be like, nope, not going to do it. We don't do it's that like here Brian Kelly walked up being like, guys, I'm going to show you. No, like he didn't be like, I want to dance. It was like five-star quarterback says dance. You're just like, okay, I'll dance for a second. I don't give a shit. And then it became a joke. So then another player or two were like, come do it. And he's like, sure. Anyway, yes, I, I think there's something to that. Do I think like that's literally why he came? No, but – I, I did talk to some people in Notre Dame who think there's like a little bit of Brian Kelly was always slightly limited in recruiting one Notre Dame stuff, recruiting all that, but because he didn't get into that world very much, he didn't get into that sketchy world we all know and love. And I, I think there is something of, he wants to, now he could do that. Now it's in the rules. Now he can recruit differently. And also, and I'm not, I'm not going this far yet. So don't quote me on this, but there's some people I've talked to who are like, 
this guy's like a pol- former politician who used to work on political campaigns and is a process guru freak guy. Like he actually might be somebody who is made to thrive at getting the most out of NIL. I am not going that far yet, but I do think, yeah, like this culture suits him to some extent better than if he was trying to do this 10 years ago. Yeah. That's a terrific anecdote. I didn't know that. Dude, one thing, two things politicians know how to do is they understand how to acquire power and they understand how to acquire funding. And like, well put, football coach in a nutshell. And that's what makes this whole era so fascinating. And, you know, a lot of times when a guy walks into an LSU job, Ogeron got it. It's like, all right, the talent's there. We just like, you know, less needed to go. Things got a little weird, but it wasn't like a rebuild. And I don't like, it's weird to call LSU with the way they just consistently recruit a rebuild. But I mean, my God, you look at what happened in the bowl game with the amount of scholarship players they had, the poor kid that was the high school quarterback taking snaps. <laughs> um, I, I, I just, that was, you know, Kansas state is probably going to have some sort of banner or flag in their facility. It's like, we beat LSU and anyone who had eyeballs, is like, <laughs> come on now. Like, let's yeah. like what's happening here. What is this rebuild like from a talent replenishment standpoint? Because you know, every you every couple of years you see a program that's pretty good have a mass exodus when you know it's a culture change or blah blah blah. You don't really see it with programs like LSU. Like, how how steep of a rebuild is this from a roster replenishment standpoint? Pretty steep, and obviously, as you know, in Oxford as well. Like, we now live in a time with the portal where it can at least be expedited a little bit. Yeah. You know how much of a rebuild, but there's no doubt. I mean, you talk to people in that building in January, February, and they were just like. What have we gotten into a little bit? I mean, like you said, they were playing 40, no, 30 something scholarships. Like 39 is what I remember. I think it was 39 scholarship players in that bowl game. And it's not a lot. It just the depth was depleted. I mean, and yeah, one or two guys transferred at corner, for example, but like corner had literally nobody who had played football at LSU before. And like, it's not like they had huge recruits coming in and it was just a disaster at so many positions. And and it's not like it just because it was the end of the O era. A lot of it was sustainable problems. Like, O-line recruiting had been a mess for years. Even the big recruits they get were like the kind of recruits that every other school like actually knew wasn't that good. You know, so many of those fake five-star types. And I think there were so many institutional problems. So yeah, I think they knew this was a big rebuild. I think the thing I'll give a lot of credit to Kelly for, and I really mean this, is 15 transfers, right? Just a little shy of Ole Miss, I believe, and some others. But what they did, I thought, was interesting because they were thinking very big picture with how they approached it. Yes, of course, a few of them are big-name guys. You know, Seven Banks, Jarek Bernard Converse is a all-Big 12 corner. Jane Daniels is a big name. But overall, it was much more about, like, long-term using the portal than it was just, like, getting 15 starters. It was they balanced it by year. They basically were just working toward getting their numbers back across the board and not just, like, patching for 2022. And I think that was really sad. You know, they have two fresh redshirt freshman linebacker transfers from other SEC schools that – they're not going to play this year, but they're just building that depth for the future. Things like that. They got receiver and Kyron Lacey's another one like that. Uh, 2-0 lineman. One of them was a freshman All-American last year. So it was this mix of veterans and young that I think has actually patched this the, the program as a whole decently well. Still a long way to go. And that's the main reason there's a limit on how good they can probably be this year. You know, I know we're going to get to all that, but the top of this roster is as good as most teams, like the top, you know, there's probably 10, 12 guys that if it all clicks perfectly are all SEC, right? Some of that talent special. 
it's when you get to if one corner goes down what the hell are you doing it's it's like okay I, uh you know if, if one uh lineman goes down what's your move i think that's where there's still you're gonna still see it that's why they're still probably gonna slip up sometimes but but yeah this rebuild is something where they just have to get their numbers back because it was in such trouble and also on top of the culture thing the rebuild and the culture stuff it's also rebuilding the they had to rebuild the infrastructure of the culture because there were so many, they already, they kind of nudged out three or four guys in the first month that were kind of problem guys, a few more in the last few months. Just, it's also like, there are a lot of numbers on that roster that actually like weren't really ever going to help you because they were headaches. Yeah. And like you mentioned the, the transfer aspect of it, it, they kind of adopted the strategy of what Kiffin appears to be doing permanently because he's at a place like Ole Miss, which like, you know, in the skate grandscape of college football is upper echelon, but in terms of the SEC and kind of fighting for top-level elite talent, you just aren't going to get it. And I think Kiffin realized that, and they're going the portal thing year to year. Whether that's sustainable long-term is going to be fascinating to watch play out. I don't know. He's had a pretty good batting average so far. But yeah. Kelly's doing it in his first year because when you put this staff together, the recruiting the high school kid in your first class that doesn't really count as your first class is next to impossible. It's a total yeah, crapshoot. Yeah. You get the kids that want to be there. You try to develop a relationship or two, and then it's just like, all right, now what do we have to do? And you're right. It expedites the process, and it's tough for depth purposes, but you know, you mentioned them being strategic about it, and I think that's a really fascinating and probably a, definitely a smart way to go about it. It probably all starts at quarterback. Who's going to play quarterback for them this yeah. year? Because it's Jaden Daniels, the transfer from Arizona State. Miles Brennan is somehow still there, uh, thanks to a. Is that a, do you can you even call it a fishing accident? He didn't get off the pier, from what That's I. That's a good point. Yeah, it was like, a flip flop. Did he go accident. fishing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a like a parking lot incident. I don't know what you would call it. He's somehow still around. And then you got Nussmeyer, who I covered when I was still in Dallas. I covered a. Oh, shit. Couple, couple games at flower mound he wasn't there his brother or relative was there but i mean you talk about a god at that school one of the most talented quarterbacks to ever come through they were still talking about it after he's gone yeah. plus walker howard so it's like four guys it probably seems a little bit of a stretch to have walker howard even though he's an early yeah. early start is it three or two how do you view this because from an outsider's perspective it seems kind of wide the hell open yeah and it, it has been and i guess this is good timing for us to record this because I think we've always viewed it as three. You know, I think going into that, but here's why this is so fascinating. Going into spring, I think most people still just thought of it as Daniels versus Brennan. And it's even weirder going back further. When Brennan came back from the portal, it was everyone's like, oh, he came back. Like they're talking to come back. It's his job, right? Then you get surprised with the Daniels edition, which surprised me. And it's like, well, they got this big transfer. Like you would assume he's the front runner, right? And everyone thinks it's Brennan versus Daniels. And then Nussmeyer is this, I mean, like you said, young top 100 recruit, redshirt freshman, and was pretty raw last year, but has some it factor stuff. He's really talented. And everyone I talked to on that staff was like, he kind of had the best spring. Like that guy's really good. And like, I don't know if he's going to win the job because he's raw and they don't want turnovers, but like he might actually be the best. And then you go into practice and, and Nussmar just got banged up uh, two days ago, small ankle thing. So he missed today's scrimmage. But what's interesting is I had been hearing about for a week now that like Brennan might really be in third, man. Like he might not even really be in this wow. thing. And today without Nussmar at the scrimmage, Daniels took every first team rep every single one and Nussmeyer worked with the twos which was basically like walk on receivers and you don't want to overread that and Kelly downplayed that it meant much but when you combine like what we're hearing and we see that it's hard to ignore it so to answer your question it does seem like right now it's probably Daniels versus Nussmeyer and 
you know, there's a lot of validity to, I think we're going to one find out kind of where Kelly values things at quarterback because history's always said he takes the trustworthy guy, the senior, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that would have been Miles Brennan. And I think Nussmeyer gives the most it factor, maybe even the highest ceiling. But Daniels has that running ability that is really rare. I think they think he's improving with his passing. They've adjusted his footwork, all this stuff. And I think there's something to the argument, and I don't think that highly of Daniels. I think he's flawed. I mean, he's got some passing problems, processing problems. But maybe if, if hypothetically, Kelly thinks his O-line is going to be kind of bad this year, it does make sense to go with more of a, a Daniels approach, somebody who can kind of neutralize that and get creative with and and to go more inside baseball than you're even asking. Like, throw line they're building right now is kind of interesting. It's kind of the, one of those five lines that's a little more like Maulers, a little more like, you know, five guards. You know what I'm saying? Like one of those kind of lines where, like, they'll punch you in the mouth, which isn't that kind of conducive to a modern, like, RPO thing of kind of bulldoze you and then pop out. I don't know. So I might be talking my ass there, but part of me wonders if Daniels is just what Kelly really wants, but I think Nussmeyer is right in there. So is that just it for Brennan? Because he elects not to transfer. I think everyone assumes it. So, like, right. I mean, look, I'm not trying to ask you to be eligibility math guy, but my count, this is it, right? I mean, if he doesn't win the job, this is just he's a – what a weird career. What a – And he's basically said, this is my chance. He's, like, said multiple times on record, this is my last chance. So, yeah, that is a – depressing, I think, is a fair way to put it. I mean, Guy was the golden boy Ogeron recruit when he signed, top 200 kid. LSU never got two and top 200 quarterbacks back then. He was going to modernize and be the face of this, like, spread offense they were finally going to build. Doesn't get the job as a freshman. Joe Burrow transfers in. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's two years. Uh, year four, finally gets the job, puts up great numbers. And it was and not has... the reason they struggled. He was good. Exactly, like 400 struggle. yards a game. And has an, a torn oblique, like, hip injury that was so unprecedented, like, doctors didn't know what to do with and said they'd name the surgery after him. Like, and then the flip-flop broken arm accident. Like, that is actually sad. Like, that's not me being a, a fan reporter. I feel for that kid no, to yeah. my core. Yeah. God, that's terrible. And he's a good kid. Doesn't, like, screw up or anything. It's, it's a bummer. I've never thought about that. If I ever had a doctor be like, hey, we're thinking about naming this procedure after you, I'd be like, am I going to wake up? What, what is that? What is that? Because like, <laughs> like, you don't know how to do it, really. <laughs> yeah, what? Like, this doesn't have a name. That means there's no instruction set. That's tough. So, like, <laughs> the most. Uh, good point. Yeah, like the, that, that, I would never want that to happen. So, thoughts, like, you know, knock on wood on that one. So, if you mention it's those two, it I talked to you know I had Ryan Buchanan on the show, former yeah. MIS legend last night, gonna do a regular segment. You know, he went through this with Chad Kelly in 2015. Yeah. And Chad Kelly was the far more talented guy. Ryan would admit that as well. But it was still a quarterback battle. He mentioned without truncated a time period camp is if you have even just a minor injury like Nussmeyer, how big of a setback is that? Mm. Because it's hard enough to win a quarterback battle when it's two guys. The three thing is almost impossible. And it sounds like you said Brennan has slipped off to third a little bit. Just from a rep standpoint, it's almost impossible to get them three. But does Daniels win it almost, not solely, but partially because, you know, Nussmeyer misses like five, six days, whatever it is. That seems like a tough, tough time frame. No, it's a fair question. I think there were some fans in my mentions basically being like, well, Daniels is going to take it now, blah, blah, blah. I, from what I've gathered, Nussmeyer should be back by even tomorrow, possibly. Okay. Like, this isn't too serious. So, in that scenario, probably not. But, no, it's a real thing to wonder. Because, 
again, like Daniels does, even though he like doesn't feel like it because he feels so raw and like not a great passer. He also has a ton of experience, three years of starting. So like these things might lead to a default of maybe Jane Daniels, the front runner. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating. Cause like, if that plays out that way, it seems like, okay, like this is happening this year. And then like, would you anticipate them kind of going with Nussmeyer like next year? And this is kind of like selling him on the future, despite him not playing this year. Well, and to go even further than that, I mean, if you look at Kelly, there's so much history of him. His, like, quarter one starter of the opening opener isn't always his starter all year. There's so many times he'll, like, pull the guy one half into game game one or or split the first game or pull him by game four. I wouldn't be surprised if it's Daniels gets the start, but very short leash, and by, like, week four or something, it's Nussmeyer. But to your actual question – yeah, I, I don't. I, from what people I've talked to, Nussmeyer gets it. Like he knows this is ahead of schedule anyway, and that he's gonna stay. I think you never know. You just don't. But and I think, and the beauty of the way LSU has set this room up is okay. So say Daniels gets it, or Brennan gets it, he starts next year. You have Walker Howard versus Nussmeyer in year two and year three, respectively. So you're in a really good position there for the next, in theory, four to five years of quarterback. Yeah. What's the talent on the defensive side of the ball look like? I know this has been kind of DBU, and if you look at the depth chart, it's like I don't recognize a ton of these names. There doesn't seem to be a ton of depth there. They look okay-ish on the defensive line. You know, you've always known LSU when they're good to have a really good defense with a ton of depth and a ton of athleticism. That seems like it's going to be a bit of a challenge. I know they bring in – I forget the guy's name, but the Chiefs, and in a lot of NFL House, yeah. there. Like, what, what are your kind of – this is a broad question, but, like, what are your expectations for this defense and how different will it look? Yeah, I think the main bedrock of this entire team is going to be, I mean, there's an expectation that this should be, in a vacuum, the best D-line in the SEC. It is, there's three possible first, actually four, yeah, three or four possible first-round picks on that front. B. Joe Jalari should be a first-rounder at edge rusher. Ali Gay, probably more of a mid-round guy, but still six seven, really long, havoc kind of creating DN. And Mason Smith at D-tackle, the five-star uh, sophomore, I mean, my hot take is I think by the end of the season, he's the best interior lineman in the SEC. I mean, he is a freak. He's actually, he actually just made Bruce Feldman's freaks list. But, I mean, you look at his numbers, those first five or six games of last year as a true freshman D-tackle in the SEC. And he was, like, second in pressure rate as a D-tackle. You know, like, his, he's just a superstar. And I think in year two, the scheme's kind of built around him. I think Mason Smith becomes the guy. Like, that's the guy I put your money on now. And then Jaquelin Roy was in the athletic Dane Brugler's uh, first round mock draft from a few months ago. And he's like the fourth fit, like fiddle, you know, and he, he's at nose tackle and they're deep there. You know, they got Makai Wingo, who's an all uh, uh, SEC, all freshman team guy from Mizzou to transfer and be like the backup D end. Uh, they're looking really deep on the D line. So this entire hope for the season comes on that D line. There's no doubt about that. It's the rest that you are valid to have so many questions about you know like corner it's tough to talk about corner because in a vacuum say you live in this perfect world where no one gets hurt that's a your corners are Jarek bernard converse and all big 12 corner from oklahoma state which was one of the five best defenses in the country last year and seven banks from ohio state who was a preseason all-american last year before a ton of injuries bad injuries too hip injuries so it's like yeah, in a perfect world where those guys are healthy all 12 games, that's that's a strength, actually. That's two of the fantastic corners, right? 
but that is very naive. Like right. just one, they both have little injury histories. Two, just it's the SEC corners go down a lot. And the problem is if even one of those, they have no depth, like none. I I mean, I can't really like I even heard one of the, the, the second or third string corners might be out for the year on academics. It's mind blowing how like the next guy up might even be a walk on that they like, but you know how that goes. Like it's bad. And uh, now there's the really good, but the middle is good. Like Greg, Greg Brooks from Arkansas is a really good three-year starter nickel from Arkansas. You know, I think he'd go outside by the way, if need be uh, safeties, like they basically have three starters at safety between both returning starters, Jay Ward and, and Joe Fu- uh, and major burns are back. Plus Arkansas three-year starter. Joe Fouché is there. Safe, like, you know, safety and nickel are fine, but outside corner, man, you are valid to have major concerns there. So it's like, yeah, the first, and that's why my theme here, I'm sorry, I'm rambling a bit. My theme here is like the first team of LSU, like that first group of starters, like on a perfect world, is a top 15 team in terms of talent, right? Like there's a scenario where they can beat anyone but that's just not how football works. It's very naive. And once you get to that second, third units and a lot of position groups, you're like, Oh, you're screwed. So that's how I view the defense is loaded up front, very thin elsewhere. What is their offensive identity? I felt like they kind of quietly brought in Mike Denbrock, the guy from Cincinnati, <laughs> like quite slightly, you know, fresh off that playoff appearance. You mentioned the offensive on rebuilding it, uh, playing five guards, bold move. I think it could work. I think it could also be a disaster. Like that may be the. Don't take me too literally on that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I know what you mean. Like it's not literally five guards, but kind of some yeah. what you call them, like punchers, and kind of just go bowling out. balls. Yeah, a little bowling, bit. yeah, I like that. So like it's, but it's not traditional, and it's obviously not where they would want to be. You know, with a fully healthy program and where they want to be in a couple of years. So like, you know, you have one of the SEC's best receivers. You have pretty good options at quarterback like running back it seems interesting like what do you think the offensive identity will be like the best version of it like is what such a good question because the strength of the offense is the receivers right like Keishon Butte is a preseason all-american that 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 group of like sophomores is like 60 like really loaded at receiver but you don't know what quarterback's gonna be you don't know what the o-line's gonna be so it's like, how can you, it's hard to imagine it being this, especially if it's Jaden Daniels, right? This like pass heavy air raid. I don't, I, it's hard to see that being right, even though you want to get the ball in those guys' hands. Just it's, they're keeping a lot close to the vest, but I think it's going to be, it's going to be a spread style, right? Like most offenses these days actually look pretty similar, but I think it's going to be a little more of like an RPO run balance, you know, keep the decision making kind of high efficiency i guess would be a good way to put it so i, I and that's maybe again why you go daniels to some extent to kind of keep it in control where yeah i bet you see some screen work with the receivers and short passes to get the a lot of getting the ball in their hands and go make a play stuff and, and getting creative with the running backs i kind of think it's gonna be yeah kind of that like i'm trying to give a good comp in recent years but like smash mouth spread maybe is maybe the best way to think of it Exotic Smash Mouth. The Tennessee Titans tried that. That's a while. what I was thinking of. Yeah, more yeah, of a term than anything else. I don't think that guy. You know, Great they, term. Offense didn't work out. Yeah. yeah, I was about to say. Well, it didn't actually reflect that on the field. They love to say that in press conferences, and you'd watch it and be like, I don't understand what the hell is this. So like, there, I feel like there yeah. is a way to ex- execute it. It just, you know, it, you know, maybe, maybe. Honestly, when- you know what the answer is? I got it. Dan Mullen's late era, like Dan Mullen's Mississippi State Ooh. teams, were okay. actually. Smash mouth spread, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
especially like the Fitzgerald team. Yeah. Yeah. Like he won, yeah. you know, seven, eight games a year, and then you got a guy that could sling it a little bit. And it's like, oh, they almost won 10. Like that's that's yep. probably a great comp, or they did yep. win 10 that one year. Yep. Schedule-wise, as we kind of wrap up here, that's it's a so like I've done a couple of these so far, and you can tell, like, oh, early, you know, early's tough, you know, it's easy late, or vice versa. I don't know what the hell to make of this. They play right. Florida State I'm to open you. the season in this in the Superdome. Obviously, you got Southern next week, but then it's state. New Mexico, then at Auburn, Tennessee, at Florida, Ole Miss, and then all of a sudden, somehow you're in October, again, November, and it's like, I feel like this just started. What do you make of this? Is it favorable, unfavorable? It's kind of wild, because I don't know what to make of Florida State. I think they'll beat State in Baton Rouge, um, just because I just don't see State going down there and doing that. State's really deep, you know? Like, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, like, I, like I, I think they'll win that one. And then, obviously, the New Mexico and at Auburn, it's like, I don't – like, you could get to October, and it's like, I don't really know a ton about this team. How do you view this schedule in terms of how it shapes up for LSU's success? Yeah, no, I really do agree with your overall sentiment there, that it's like, it's a weird year, and obviously this is true for, like, everyone in the West, where, yes, I think Alabama's a juggernaut. I think we all agree, like, A&M's really talented. But even then, we don't really know what to make of yet. Right. Like, quarterback, all that stuff. But in theory, they're a top-ten team. But it's like, this schedule is basically a schedule of zero easy games, but also z- very few games that you're sure are, like, a loss. It's just this weird in-between zone of, like, everybody's a B. Is that, like, or, like, a B-minus? Yes. It's like, like, everyone feels like that. And maybe that's just the portal era we're in where we don't really know what anyone is. Cause it's like, in some ways you can look at it as favorable where it's like your main rivals, Auburn and Florida, for example, are in these weird down stretches. Like, I don't think either of those teams are going to be very good this year. I just don't, I think Napier's going to do great, but I don't think that roster is set up to do well this year. Uh, Mississippi, I will defer to you, but it just feels like a team that's also really volatile. Cause like it's built on transfers and right. So it's like they could be good. They also might be bad. I don't know. But uh, that makes it's like, two of us. I think they'll be okay, but like I have no clue. You could totally convince, like, if you said, like, hey, man, they went five and seven, I'm thinking, yeah, shit happens. Um, but it's like Mississippi State's not scary, but they're well rounded. And just Florida State has been bad for so long, but they're actually like kind of on the come up. Like they did turn a corner last year. It's this we Arkansas is really well built. So, but also in that like not scary zone. And Tennessee's a tough crossover game, like no doubt about it. They're tough this year. So again, long-winded, like every game is probably a spread within seven points. But also you could argue LSU's favorite in 10 games. Is that accurate? Like, and obviously yeah. I don't think that means they win 10. Like, God, no, I don't think that at all. But it's like that's what makes it so weird. Every game's tough, no game is too tough well, so yeah sorry it's like you, no 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 go ahead but like i was just saying you better win your home games plus fsu it feels like and then just kind of see how some of that takes out on the road alabama is kind of its own beast minus alabama yeah, fsu is the home game like it's kind of bizarre i didn't even know the acc still existed that sunday like fsu is supposed to be on the come up like i you know i would in the back of my mind they don't exist like the as like the uh, acc is gone like that's actually a weirdly awesome Sunday Labor Day game because I don't know it, what to uh, expect from either side. I didn't even know this was happening until I looked at the schedule. What a treat. It's perfect. It's a perfect Sunday game. And you know how much of a win this is for me? Opening weekend <laughs> of college football, I get to just watch. And it's in New Orleans, so I don't have to travel anywhere. It's not even to Baton Rouge. I could just watch football Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 
And then at like 5 p.m. Sunday, be like, guess I got to drive 10 minutes. What a what a weekend for me. But no, I'm completely with you. And I mean, I know we're eventually going to be like, what's your prediction for the year? It's like, I think they're just going to be volatile in the sense that, first off, to our point, I think in theory they're favored in 10 games, but just, you know, revert to the mean to some extent. But it's like on the right night, they can go into College Station and beat a and On the right night, they can beat Tennessee and all like all these teams. And on the wrong night, they can lose to Ole Miss and Auburn and Florida State because they have all these kind of weird issues and they're new and so much. So I tend to think eight and four, seven and five might be like the smarter bet, you know, just, just history. Like it's not likely you go from six and seven to like eight and four right away. But I think it's just going to be somewhere in the middle where there's going to be like a three-week stretch where like, did Kelly fix LSU? And then there's also going to be like a two-week stretch where it's like, man, they're a mess. So I just think it's going to be a little up and down because they're figuring all that out. But to your thing of the schedule, man, look at it. Like there is a scenario where they are going into Florida 6-0 and and it's like, holy crap. It's but it's also like, yeah, so it's just, oh, it's going to be a roller coaster, man. So, but it's going to be fun. But it's a different kind of fun, right? I mean, you've kind of like, you went from like the apex of covering a national title to, okay, how quickly is this going to become a train wreck? To now it's just like, there's a scandal. Like there's nothing. They're trying to rebuild the program. Like what can this become? Now look, they're not like a team that's like, can they get to five wins? That's not that level of rebuild. But I imagine <laughs> it's got to be like a different kind of team to cover than you've been accustomed to for the last like yep. three to four years, because it's either been sky high expectations or like, okay, you know, when is this going to go up in flames? And neither is going to happen this year, and it's going to be kind of weirdly nice. It'll be a weirdly nice break. You'll get a year free of scandal. It's honestly a great year to be Brody Miller. You got the opening weekend where you can watch college football and go down the It really is. Maybe this is the year of you. The stash, man, and the stash. Like, it's the year of me finding myself. No, I, I am with you, man. And you know what the best part is? Like, to some extent, I can just cover football which is what we <laughs> like doing. Like, I can just be like, what's going on with the secondary? And that's my story that week. And that sounds so nice. So, yeah, I'm with you, man. Uh, you know, like, last year when he got fired, I was like, hey, can you come on the podcast? Like, yeah, can we not go as long as usual? I got a lot going on. I was like, no, it's, it sounds like you got quite a bit going on. Like, it'll be a little calmer this year. It is, who's having yeah. a better 2022 than Brody Miller? Not this guy. I don't know. I'd like to hear from him. I appreciate the time, my man. We'll do this again game week. It's great to see you as always, and uh, we'll talk soon. Always a pleasure, my dude. Take care. And that was Brody Miller. Appreciate his time. As always, always generous enough to come on the podcast and uh, hang out for a bit. Now we're going to get to Sean Smith of GoBigBlueCountry.com to preview a really, really, what should be a really good Kentucky team and a really good roster. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg. Absolutely the best place in Mississippi to get meat. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, you get a free newsletter from me three to five times a week that I just started back this week. How about that? Joe, check out the uh, latest issue. That's RippyWrights.Substack.com. A lot of football notes in there as well. Probably have another one out for the people tomorrow as we get that off and running. But anyway, if you're a subscriber, you get a newsletter for me plus discounted meats. Right now, it's a 16-ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's one hell of a way to kickstart your grilling weekend. Football season's around the corner. All kinds of great grilling opportunities. You need to go check them out. LB's is the best place in the Mississippi and the world, for that matter, to get meat. All kinds of delicious cuts, fresh seafood, sausages. Uh, I like the tri-tip filet burgers are always awesome. 
spicy ribeye sausage is terrific. Go find your own favorites. It's a staple of the Oxford community, the best place in the world. Oxford is so lucky to have LBs. Check them out, LBs University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Sean Smith of Go Big Blue Country on what to expect from the Kentucky Wildcats. All right, we now continue on with our uh, Ole Miss opponent preview series. We now welcome on Sean Smith, founder of GoBigBlueCountry.com. Been on the podcast before. Always appreciate your time, man. I appreciate uh, you hopping on again. How are things there in Lexington? Oh, uh, absolutely. Thanks for having me on there. Kentucky fans are looking forward to football season. The The energy – in this state right now and it's just a testament to what mark stoops has built like every summer we get to this point and i'm thinking can the energy and expectations can they keep climbing or are they finally just going to hit this point to where they just level out no like kentucky fans are wanting more another 10 win season wasn't enough and uh i mean these fans are all the time dreaming of winning the sec east and you got a big time quarterback coming back so the buzz in lexington right now is all about football yeah, you mentioned at the top of that, you said Kentucky fans are excited about football season. And I feel like at this point, like that whole, well, you know, up and plucky Kentucky is a little bit overplayed. I mean, Mark Stoops has had the program over 500. I'm throwing the COVID year out just because what the hell. Uh, pretty much every year since 2015, and they've kind of reached that next level. And you mentioned them wanting more. So they're coming off a 10-3 and three season last year with a win in the Citrus Bowl. I'm just curious, like – what are the expectations when you say like they want more, they want another 10 win season. And we'll start with like a 10,000 foot view because when you view this roster, it's a pretty good roster and it's a really good roster for a place that, you know, battles the basketball thing and hasn't been known for, you know, to be on the top half of recruiting in the sec. They've got a couple former Ole Miss defects as starters in Jacques Jones and Keydron Smith, who would have been definitely contributors on Ole Miss's defense each of the last two years. Keydron Smith was, so was Jacques Jones, but kind of fell victim to Lane Kiffin improving the talent pool a bit on that side of the ball and, you know, was probably going to see their reps diminish. They definitely weren't going to be benched, but it was going to cut into them. And so just when you look at this roster as a whole, what should the expectations be? There's a lot of nice players. There's a couple really good players. There's one really, really good player on the defensive side. And then I don't really know what to make of Levis. I know he's good, but when you put all of that together, what does that make expectation-wise, if that makes any sense? well, and, and I think I think first of all, the expectations within the program have changed significantly. At one point, when Stoops first got to Lexington, it was just to get to six wins, and then it was try to get to seven and five, and then it became, well, can you do something that the program hasn't done in say 25, 30 years? And it was win eight games. Well, they ended up getting nine in that regular season about four years ago. Won the tenth with the bowl game, and got another nine-win season in the regular season a year ago, and then got a tenth in the bowl. I feel like that this program has reached. A level of expectations now that eight and four wouldn't be considered a failure, but there would be a large portion of the fan base that would probably be like, man, you, you took a significant step back just going eight and four. They've only won more than eight games in the regular season twice in like 30 plus years. So I feel like nine and three is where the expectations should be this year. I think that should be the what you consider acceptable if you're a Kentucky fan. I think fans, though, are shooting for a 10-win regular season. And obviously, there's some key road games there. That one at Ole Miss on October 1st, that is a swing game for Kentucky. Uh, that second game of the season on the road at Florida, that's another one that when Kentucky wins it, it usually sets them up and propels them for bigger and better seasons. Uh, the two 10-win seasons they've had, they've beaten Florida in both of those. 
So I think expectations, I think realistic expectations for this team should be nine wins, but hope they still won somewhere and, and get a 10th. And if they do that, then they're setting themselves up for a New Year's six game. And I think Kentucky fans and this team feel like they let that slip away a year ago, had a great opportunity to beat Tennessee at Kroger Field, uh, wasted that opportunity, then performed poorly on the road at Mississippi State a year ago. But to me, that should have been a 10-win Kentucky team playing in a New Year's six a season ago. How has Stoops done it? Because I think probably what gives legitimacy to the fact that, you know, even beyond Kentucky's fan base, legitimacy to the fact is like, okay, Kentucky is a real player in the East. Look, the gap between Georgia and everyone, that's not even pertaining to the East, except Alabama is fairly large. It pretty much goes, you know, conference wide. But then just being a real player, you know, being on even footing with the Florida or a Tennessee, I think what gives that legitimacy is the way he's recruited. Um, he, you know, he's landed players that – just at a consistent level that Kentucky's never had in program history. But it's not just like – like in some states, it's like, you know, they finally started landing the top in-state kids. They didn't let them get out of state. Or you could kind of have the Hugh Freeze model where it's like, we don't really know how the hell he's landing these kids. He definitely sells a hell of a message. But, you know, they cheated very sloppily. Like how has he done this? Because it seems like it's been selective and kind of a unique strategy. Like how would you describe how he's done this? It's crazy. I was actually talking to someone about this topic a few weeks ago, and it, it feels like that this program has been really, really solid at kind of establishing an identity. But then again, they don't get complacent within that identity. So it started out those first few years of Stoops. They wanted to open it up and they'd run the air raid offense with Neil Brown as the offensive coordinator. And then they had an injury at quarterback to Drew Barker that year. And then Steven Johnson steps in and then they start running the football, powering behind that offensive line. And they they built their success and their foundation on that offensive line, being physical up front, pushing some teams around on, on that side of the ball. And they they let that momentum kind of carry them to a point to where they got the first 10-win season. Well, then they they come off the, uh, the, the disappointing season there with the COVID year, and then they fire Eddie Grand. They want changes because expectations have changed now. They want to win the SEC East. They want to get to bigger bowl games. They bring in a new offensive coordinator, Liam Cohen. They start throwing the ball more, taking shots downfield, trying to get the wide receivers and quarterback more involved. I feel like it's been – they've found ways and they've, they've had pillars in their program that they could build around, but they haven't just kind of pigeonholed themselves into doing one thing and saying, all right, we're good enough. Let, let's just keep winning nine games. That's enough here. I feel like they're trying to do things to take it to another level. And Now you've got a quarterback that can sling it around. That has helped you recruit. At wide receiver, you've you've hit the portal and done some things on your roster, and it, it's making the the offense more appealing to more talented players via the high school route. So I think it's a mixture of building those out and finding out what those identities are, but then not getting complacent within those identities and kind of trying to take yourself to the next level. I think that they've done an excellent job just stockpiling success, regardless of what it is, and just trying to keep the the needle moving in a positive direction. What's his footprint? And I know next to nothing about Kentucky high school football, admittedly, but it doesn't feel like one of those states where it's like, all right, if you keep all these kids in state, you're going to be fine. And then you kind of take a selective battle with some kids out of state. That may be the case, I guess. It doesn't feel like it. What is kind of his footprint recruiting wise? Well, to me, the thing that this staff has been very good at is they build relationships and they build them early. Now, early on in his tenure, they were doing that, and those relationships didn't matter because the, the success on the field just wasn't there. They didn't have the seven, eight, nine-win seasons. They had four and five-win seasons, but you could see that the future and everything was there, and they were building a program. 
But when Mac Jones is committed to Kentucky and then Nick Saban and Alabama call, he's going to Alabama. You're to a point now to where you're seeing Kentucky win some of those recruiting battles head-to-head against some of the marquee programs in college football. It's because they have a they do an excellent job identifying talent very early on, letting Vince Merrill and these coaches build those relationships, uh, the continuity within the coaching staff. you got Brad Watt, who's been on the staff now for four or five years. You've got Mark Stoops, who's been there a decade. Vince Merrill has been his right-hand man for that entire time in his tenure. I think the consistency and the continuity across the coaching staff at key spots, I think that has helped them too in recruiting to get them to the point that they're at now that when some of that attrition happens within your coaching staff, you have other guys that can be promoted and continue building on those relationships. I think that's the biggest thing that they do is those relationships that they build. First quarterback, Kentucky quarterback in a while that's kind of slung it around a bit after a couple of years of, you know, you had the Lynn Bowden thing after an injury or two, Terry Smith. Like, it felt like with Levis last year, you could kind of actually open it up for the first time in quite a while. What did he do well in your mind last year? What did he do poorly? And kind of what do you expect or would it would Kentucky like to see him do better to kind of take Kentucky to another level? Well, we, we know the quarterback run game became a big part. Of, uh, of what Levis did, especially late in the year. Uh, we know the arm talents there. We know the deep ball that with Wondell Robinson. Uh, those two build a connection there that, I mean, it was one of the better ones in the SEC. And uh, obviously, if Wondell Robinson goes on the NFL and gets drafted, now you're seeing Levis show up on some NFL draft boards. But I think the biggest thing that I liked about him a year ago was just his swagger and his confidence. I mean, you're talking about a guy that had been on campus maybe a month to two months and they voted, and the, his teammates voted him team captain. I, I had never seen that in my time covering Kentucky and my time following the program, a player be on campus that short amount of time and get voted team captain by his teammates. I, said, I think that said a lot about his leadership ability and his confidence and his swagger in the huddle. So I think that's the best thing about Levis. I think that's why he's going to be successful this year, even though you're getting these expectations of, now look, it's, it's ridiculous that someone put him as the overall number one pick on a draft board early in the spring. I've not seen that that one. That's a take. Yeah, I thought that that was a little too far out there. I mean, could he play play his way into a first-round, second-round, third-round pick? Absolutely, I think he could. I think that he has all the tools and the body, the arm, everything that resembles that. But you also want to see those interceptions go down. That was the thing that I I feel like he struggled with the most was some throws. Uh, I know he had a couple that were batted up and and just – kind of in midair, just interceptions. He had a couple there at the end of the first half that were ended up being Hail Marys and picked off. So those those play into it. And I'd honestly like to see those numbers be like in a different category for themselves when it comes to like Hail Mary into half interceptions instead of counting against the quarterback. But I feel like that's the area he needs to improve the most is that decision-making, spread the ball around. He's going to have that favorite wide receiver, but I think he's got to mix in to some other guys as well. And I think that they've built that within their offense this offseason. The talent is better at that position than it was a year ago overall. Yeah, you mentioned replacing more obvious – I mean, excuse me, Robinson. That's a that's a tough one. But, you know, they added – you're right. They could kind of be deeper, but maybe not necessarily have, like, the top-end talent because that kid was unbelievable. How much of that from Levis's struggles was just – you mentioned the uh, the aspect of him only being on campus a month. I think that probably got lost in the shuffle and the success that Kentucky had last year. That wasn't a kid that transferred in in spring ball. He, if I'm not mistaken, lost yeah. the quarterback battle at Penn State, utilized the one-time free transfer, and literally like three and a half weeks for the season was like, what's up, I'm here. And that worked out well. But, like, you know, that's a, that's a short amount of time to try to get – 
it's one thing to learn a playbook and learn the offense, but to get familiar with the intricacies of it and actually see it, if that makes sense. Like how much of, you know, if he did struggle at all last year, could you attribute to that? Cause that that's a lot of new in a short amount of time. It is. And I just don't think Kentucky's wide receiver room was kind of built to maybe have the success that, that he was capable of a year ago. Like you said, it was Wandell Robinson, Josh Ali mixed in a little bit here and there, still relying on Chris Rodriguez in the running game. But now you've got these talented wide receivers. I mean, Dane Key, a true freshman coming in, is probably going to start right away. you got Barry and Brown, another freshman who's extremely talented. Tavion Robinson transferred from Virginia Tech. So it feels like the weapons are there for him to be able to spread around a little more. you got Keaton Upshaw coming back at tight end, who was out all last year with an injury. So you, you've got weapons to spread the ball around to. I feel like you're going to get more consistency uh, across the board. Uh, you're not, you're going to have that guy that's going to become his favorite. I do think that's going to be Tavion Robinson. I think he'll end up leading them in catches, but I think you're going to see Levis spread around a little more. And I feel like that last year, kind of looking for Wandell probably 70, 80% of the time in, in passing situations, I feel like that caused him to maybe have some of those interceptions, force the ball a little bit to some other people, and then the pressure got to him at times. You'd see him get happy feet. I think that that's something you want to see him uh, be poised in the pocket, stay in there a little bit longer, set those feet, and deliver deliver that, that with that big arm that he has. You said earlier that Kentucky has established an identity as a football program, and I agree with you. And I think a large part of that is you know having a good running game, a good running back, and a pretty damn good offensive line. By my count, right before we got to, on this podcast in half-assed memory, they're going to replace three starters on the offensive line. What is that kind of looking like? That's a decent bit of turnover. But that also, like, you know, that doesn't always mean that it's going to be some sort of weakness. It, you know, offensive line is kind of the last place in college football now where plug-and-play just doesn't really exist. There's just so many factors in terms of true freshmen out of high school. But you could have sophomores and juniors that have added the weight and were just kind of depth pieces um, you know, in the previous two years, what does that look like? And is that a concern at all? Yeah, you, you mentioned the identity that Kentucky's had there at that position with the offensive line. That has definitely been, to me, the the biggest pillar that they've built this program on has been that offensive line, that success for the last five, six years. And, you know, you're, you're losing both tackles, losing your left tackle and your right tackle, and you're losing your center and Luke Fortner. So you're losing some important pieces. And, I mean, anytime you got a quarterback and you want to keep him clean, replacing both tackles it's kind of a situation that you look at where it kind of makes you panic a little bit but then again you just kind of have to trust the recruiting and what Mark Stoops has done there in that room uh, you got Eli Cox coming back he's going he's going to be uh, moving over and uh, manning the center position you've got some talented pieces there on the offensive line Kenneth Horsey uh, new offensive line coach and Zach Yenzer I think you're going to see Kentucky get back to what they were doing under John Schlarman where they were rotating in ideally eight offensive linemen, maybe even getting to nine offensive linemen and getting some game reps. And that's how they built that depth at that position was getting that experience, getting a rotation, working guys in and out, getting them key snaps in SEC games. That is something that didn't happen a season ago. So I do think that there is some room for some concern there just because that these guys like a Jagger Burton, a young guy, a young talented piece out of the state of Kentucky, a former four-star recruit, didn't get a lot of reps or didn't get any reps you want to see that kind of be getting back to the point. In Kentucky, they got three out-of-conference games there early in the schedule in September. They got the one road trip to Florida, but they got the three out-of-conference games before they go on the road to Ole Miss. It, it seems like Kentucky's going to have some opportunities to work some guys in, get some reps before they get into the really tough part of the schedule in October. What's the offense going to lose look like? You lose Liam Cohen to the Rams 
in kind of what seems to be a growing mass exodus of college coaches to the NFL because they're like, oh, work-life balance. That sounds nice. Um, you bring in someone off the McVay tree, kind of ironically enough, Rich Scangarello. What do you think it's going to look like? Is that kind of McVay-Shanahan-esque? What, what do you think the uh, offense will look like this year? Well, well you're going to have a fullback. That's the uh, that's one of the biggest things that, that's going to be different than in, in years past. You're going to be under, under center some more than what they have been in the past as well. Uh, I think being under Cohen and then Scangarello, I think has been one of the – honestly, when this is all said and done with Will Levis, I think it's going to work out in his favor that he played for two different offensive minds in two years at Kentucky because I feel like that both are going to prepare him for that next step in the NFL and prepare him for what he's going to see this season as well. I mean, you're talking about two brilliant minds in the offensive game of football in Cohen and Scangarello. So I think the offense, I think you're going to see them get more guys involved. I think a guy like Jaton McLean, a running back there that can catch some balls out of the backfield, I think you're going to see them get the ball to some guys in space, get some of those short throws. You're still going to see this offense take their shots down the field. They're going to rely heavily on the run game. It's going to be a balanced attack, I think, with them still taking and picking their shots, maybe taking some shots on first down. Chris Rodriguez, kind of in a long line of what have been we've come to know as pretty consistent backs. What Because it will be a similar running game because that McVay-Shanahan tree, it's a running game, but it is far from a uh, kind of boring one. I mean, it, it really is watching the 49ers run the football, watching the Rams run the football on Sundays looks a hell of a lot different than a lot of teams that try to do it on Sunday afternoons. How different do you think this running game will look compared to years past? Uh, that's that's a really good question, and I think there will be some changes, obviously. But when, when you've got a guy like Chris Rodriguez and, and, and Brian, too, the, the thing is with him, we still don't know what's going to come of the situation with him in the spring when he had the when he had the arrest with the DUI and all that. Like, is he going to be suspended? Is he going to be suspended one game, or is he going to be out there on opening day? I have no idea what that running back room is going to look like when Kentucky takes that first snap versus Miami, Ohio, but he's getting the bulk of those reps and practices. I know the uh, spring practice or the fan day practice they had a week ago, he was out there going through those reps. They have a scrimmage on Saturday, their first scrimmage of the fall here. So you're, you'll probably get some practice reports coming out. But as far as that running game and, and things, they're, they're going to have some, like Chris Rodriguez, we know how strong he is. Jaton McLean is a different type of runner. He is a guy that's going to make people miss. He gets out in space, really explosive. Uh, Kavasi has smoke. I mean, the, the running back room is full, has plenty of options there. But I do think that there's going to be some differences. And I, I know Chris Rodriguez last year early on, that running game significantly different from Liam Cohen to what it was to Eddie Grand with some of the reads and things that they have to do. So I'm sure there will be some, some changes there. Uh, but it seems to be something, too, with these veterans like a Chris Rodriguez who's been now in the program four or five years. You shouldn't have any problem picking things up. Defensively, the state, like it's a 3-4 defense. It's kind of what Kentucky's known for. They shouldn't really have a ton of problems on the back end. I know they may be a little bit thin at corner, but do you think they have enough depth up front, right? You got Weaver, who's the classic, like, edge guy, so whatever you want to count him as, technically a linebacker, but, you know, pretty much by the line of scrimmage the whole time. But it looks like from, like, true defensive linemen, they're counting on a lot of guys that were, you know, those that 2020 class, kind of your true sophomores. How do you kind of see that front seven shaking out? Is there any concern there at all? Yeah, I mean, Justin Rogers, a uh, guy that's been in the program for a while now, I would I would expect him to, to be right there making some plays. Uh, I don't have any concerns up front. I think that they've built enough depth there. Uh, I love the linebackers, and I love what, they're, what they do with those linebackers. And you got these super seniors coming back. You got uh, DeAndre Square, Jacquez Jones, Jordan Wright. 
Uh, I mean, Jacquez Jones, I mean, made the one of the game-winning plays last year for them when they, when they beat Florida at Kroger Field. So I think that the experience and the guys that have been in college football, some of them five years, I, I think that that's going to help Kentucky out. They can come down and put an extra guy or two in the box there and, and make some plays. But I, I don't have any concerns with the defense. And from everything out of practice, it seems to be that the defense is the unit that's ahead of schedule, maybe more so than the offense. And you, and you think with a quarterback coming back with experience that Levis has, that maybe they would be further ahead. But it's been the defense that's been the story of camp so far. Schedule-wise, it's a fascinating one because you mentioned you kind of have to tune up against Miami of Ohio, and then week two, it's, it's down to the swamp where Kentucky's had some recent success. And then they can kind of pad a couple wins before you get to the Ole Miss game. And it, it, it's interesting. It seems like the schedule spread out. Would you say Kentucky's three toughest games are at Florida, at Ole Miss, and Georgia – and they're decently spread out. I know Kentucky, excuse me, Florida and Ole Miss are still technically in the first half of the season, but you got some room there. Do you think it's a favorable schedule for Kentucky? Because I would say largely it is. Like you don't really have like a a gauntlet of a stretch, if that makes sense. Like it it the the tough ones are spread out. It seems pretty favorable. It is a very very nice schedule for Kentucky. I think in large part that's why I'm I'm predicting them to win nine games and maybe push for ten. I think on our podcast. On Kentucky Daily, I had them winning 10 games. Uh, so I think they have a chance to get to that number. But I feel I feel pretty confident that they're going to have a realistic shot to get the nine. And a large part is because of that schedule. So you mentioned those three out-of-conference games, that road trip to Florida. Florida's a team. I know Kentucky only has two wins against them, but I'm not sure there's a program when it comes to those in the east outside of Missouri, South Carolina, that Kentucky doesn't have more confidence against than Florida. I mean, they've played Florida tough feels like every year for the last five years, other than the COVID year when they went down there and gotten embarrassed. And I know Kentucky was in a situation, a lot of guys out due to COVID, a lot of guys out due to injury. They just weren't in a situation or in a, or something to even win that football game. They just didn't have the dudes to do it that day. That is a game, a swing game in week two, that if Kentucky can get it, then I think that that game at Ole Miss really swings the momentum of how special this season could be for Kentucky. But they got to win one of those two, at, at Ole Miss or at Florida. I think it's very important to get one of those. But then their first big home game doesn't come until October 8th versus South Carolina. Then they follow it the next week versus Mississippi State. So Kroger Field is going to be rocking for those two SEC games. But those are two opponents that I don't want Kentucky to look over just because they've beaten them at home. I know they've not lost to South Carolina and Lexington since I think probably going back 2000. 12 maybe I believe was the last time that South Carolina beat them in Lexington and then Mississippi State obviously it, it's been a while too I think before 2016 was the last time probably 2014 is the last time they beat them in Lexington so two big games there before a road trip to Tennessee so there, there's a lot of swing games but I do agree with you on the road at Ole Miss on the road at Florida I throw that road trip to Tennessee and then yeah. Georgia at home those are easily their four toughest games and the path to 10 really seems to be somehow splitting those, and it's really somehow going 2-1 and one against Ole Miss, Tennessee, and Florida, right? Because, look, I mean, look, anything could happen, I guess. I just think Georgia's going to be a real bear with just well, the way they've recruited and the way they've elevated themselves. But it, it's splitting those four, right? It is, and, and, and that's the thing. You, you just can't lose to a South Carolina. You can't lose to a Missouri. You can't drop one of those games that you kind of look at and say, okay, this is a team that we should beat, especially – if it's played at home. Now, that's a road trip to Missouri. 
And the last time Kentucky went out there two years ago, they didn't play well, and Missouri beat them. But I still feel like that's a program that Kentucky's better than. I feel like that they're still better than South Carolina. They get them at home. It's those road trips, like we mentioned, those four games. And, and, and looking at the schedule, it's not the same Georgia team that won a national championship, but we know that the the amount of five stars and four stars that are on that roster is just insane. It's, it's significantly more than what Kentucky has. So the talent, Georgia's definitely more talented. But – this is where this is what Stoops has done, though. I look at the schedule, and there's not that one team that I just circle and say Kentucky doesn't have a chance to win that game. Like, if they play well against Georgia at Kroger Field, could they win it? Possibly. Do I think they're going to beat Georgia? I don't. But I feel like that there's not that one game on the schedule where you go, okay, that's a that's definitely a loss for Kentucky. And I feel like that's the reason why fans are so optimistic that they they can win nine, win ten and uh, maybe compete for the East is because you look at the schedule and you think, okay, they can compete every single time they take the field. Biggest strength and biggest weakness of this Kentucky team to close out? Ooh, that's a really good question. Wow. Uh, Biggest strength, I'm going to go culture. I think the culture that they've built in Lexington, not necessarily like a certain area of the offense or defense, but I, I think the culture is their biggest strength. I think that what they've done has – the fans have rallied around this program. I think you'd have a lot of fans that would say right now that they enjoy Kentucky football more than they enjoy Kentucky basketball. And a large, a large part that is due to the culture. That is due to Mark Stoops being open with the fans and, and kind of doing all these things and look, football success. This is a program – when I was growing up as a kid and following it, I craved football success because we never had it in the state. You, you never got to go, and, and, and Commonwealth Stadium back then would be loaded and just full of people. And this is for six-win Kentucky teams or even four-win Kentucky teams. So when you give them a good product, this fan base shows up, and I think that's the biggest strength. The biggest weakness, I believe I'd probably – maybe the secondary. I know that was an area a year ago where I know Mississippi State just picked them apart. And that's the biggest reason they lost that game. They could not get any pressure on the quarterback. It was just uh, just little throws down the field. I mean, short four or five, six-yard plays. wasn't huge chunk plays. That is an area that I think they have to take a step forward this season. And if they do that, Kentucky's defense gets better, and I think it gives Kentucky a chance to win some of those swing games. If not, Kentucky's going to have to put up a lot of points. Okay, I lied. That wasn't the last thing. I'm glad you put that teaser in there. almost forgot about the Cal <laughs> Stoops comment. Thank you for uh, – like subconsciously bringing that to my attention. We have to close out with that. So if, if, if no, if the listeners out there have missed this, as we record this on a early on a Wednesday evening, or excuse me, Thursday evening, good God, getting the days mixed up here. Um, John Calipari was quoted in a story in the athletic Kyle Tucker covered them a long time. I believe he's down in the Bahamas on their summer trip or whatever. And led this uh, Tucker led the story. Like when he posted on social media with a quote about, do you have it? I don't want to butcher this, and I haven't read the story. I saw it at work, but it was basically to the effect of, like, you know, I want our football program to do well, and I hope they win 10 games every year, but, like, this is a basketball school. And it was in a push to get his indoor practice across. I'll just let you color in the lines. What happened here? Because this was hilarious. Yeah, so so Kyle put up the story on The Athletic, and the quote that he pulled was, this is a basketball school. Alabama's a football school. So is Georgia. No disrespect to our football team. I hope they win 10 games and go to bowls, but this is a basketball school. And in large part, this is due to John Calipari wanting his practice facility, a practice facility that the roof was leaking last Saturday and they had to cut practice short. So, like, and, and when you walk in the Joe Craft Center in Lexington, it needs an upgrade. 
Like there are some things that they need. And, and especially when we're talking 2022, all these football schools and all these other programs getting their updated, upgraded facilities. Kentucky football has a nice one right there against Kroger Field that has definitely changed the game for them. To me, John Calipari is going to get his practice facility. When you have a when you have a national championship coach and you have a program that's won eight national championships, you're going to get what you ask for. But other programs around UK athletics have been getting theirs. Baseball's got a brand new stadium. Uh, football's got their stuff. So, I mean, there's, there's changes being made to Rupp Arena and improvements there. But he needs that state-of-the-art facility there where the, the players are going to practice, locker rooms. That's what he's wanting to take Kentucky basketball to the next level. But it seems like Kentucky football thought that that was a dig at them, especially mentioning Georgia, who is the team that Kentucky kind of considers to be their biggest and stiffest competition in the East, and rightfully so. I, I think that some uh, there were some upset people on that side today. So you, you outlined that well. To me, when I read it, it felt like, okay, this is a written quote. You didn't hear it. Cal's in the, in the Bahamas doing his usual salesman pitch. You got a reporter on site. I'm sure he's got one too many buttons undone on some just terrific Hawaiian shirt and just kind of doing what he does, selling the product to where it sounds a lot worse on paper. But I have to ask, like, is that their greatest timing? They just lost to St. Peter's. Well, well, in, in the, in the video, when you watch the video, it's different, like you said, than reading the words in a quote. And then that's yeah. the tricky thing when you have something like this is if you don't see the, I guess the body language and the energy, the passion in someone's voice, you can take anyone's words and kind of take them for, for what they are or, or any direction you want to go. So I think when you watch the video, it wasn't as, it wasn't as much disrespect from John Calipari as what the quote made it seem. Uh, he also said that when the football program is doing well and winning 10 games and going to bowl games, it makes his job easier. And it does because then he brings those basketball players on official visits to Kroger Field and they get a taste of 70,000 fans going crazy in Big Blue Nation. So I think that – and then, two, maybe on the other side of this, Mark Stoops doesn't back down, but maybe responding on Twitter wasn't the best thing, right? Like maybe right, – because then you're kind of making it a bigger – you're well, kind of making it a bigger story or a bigger thing than what it is. But I also get where Stoops is coming from. That quote and that screenshot, it won't be the video, but it'll be the words that'll be what, what other SEC coaches will send – two recruits that are deciding between Kentucky or deciding between Tennessee, Georgia, South Carolina, these head coaches and assistant and these coordinators and things and these assistants in this league, they will use anything they can to recruit against you. And it feels like that that quote in those words in a screenshot is enough. Yeah. And I, 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 I agree. Like, I mean, is Twitter ever the right you know medium to respond to anything? I would <laughs> argue the answer is absolutely no. But if I'm Stoops and I'm sitting in my office or some GA hands me that and it's just the tweet or the quote, I, I would want to cl clap back too because, like, one, Stoops has won eight games every year throughout the COVID year pretty much for the last four years and, and is well on track to do it again for that last for a half decade in a row. He's doing it on the fraction of the resources in a much tougher conference. Look, we can argue all day in football to basketball. It's an untranslatable sport, but just top to bottom, it's a much tougher ask on a fraction of the resources. And now this guy's going to act like that I'm a nuisance to his funding when he hasn't won an NCAA tournament game in three years. Like, I get that side of it, too. Also get to understand what Cal is doing, and it probably ends up being a nothing burger, and they post something funny on social media later of them to just, I don't know, shaking hands or whatever dudes do. 
But like, I get the stoop side of it. I'd be like, are you serious? Like this fucking guy? Like, like what? What? Why now? Like, I, I, I get both sides of it. It's a weird deal, and it, no one will remember it in a month. But I did find it humorous. Yeah, and and Stoops did not back down. Like going to Twitter and putting that out there. Like Stoops is very proud of what he has built. <laughs> he should be in Lexington, and he he should be. And the fan base, I'm telling you, the fan base deserves a ton of credit. And when you when you walk into Kroger Field now, it doesn't matter if Kentucky's playing Florida. It doesn't matter if they're playing uh, Missouri at home. It is a huge environment, especially night games at Kroger Field. Those fans are just so behind this football program. And, and right now, I feel like, and you shouldn't. Nobody should want to pit head coaches against one another or say, "Well, Kentucky fans are more engaged on football than they are in basketball." But given the success of football in the last four years and where basketball has trended, obviously, the first-round loss a year ago, and I think John Calipari has earned back a lot of that trust in the fans by the way that he's rallied around the summer. He, he went on a tour and, and uh, did some things and, and raised really funds for uh, Western Kentucky's tor- tornado victims in the situation from December a year ago. Now he put on the telethon with his players a week ago for Eastern Kentucky flood victims. He's doing a lot for the state of Kentucky. He's offering guys sooner on the recruiting trail than what he did in the past. He's doing a lot to kind of fix that relationship with the fan base. Uh, but to me, any, putting anything out there that could even be portrayed as negative towards the football program is definitely not a way to do it. But I, I would recommend for everybody to watch the video before they really kind of draw conclusions and uh, and just read the way that Cal's talking, because I will say this, John Calipari has been the biggest cheerleader for every program on campus at Kentucky. We saw him a year ago when the women's basketball team won the SEC tournament. He's sitting behind the bench and going crazy and threw his hand up and lost his Rolex. Like, I mean, he's, he's one of the most passionate people and one of the biggest cheerleaders they have, but you don't want to see your head football coach and your head basketball coach going at it on, on social media or in, in any, any situation. So I'm assuming at some point tonight, John Calipari will say something, or Mark Stoops will say something. There'll be something published to Twitter. He is Sean Smith. Go BigBlueCountry.com. Check out his work, GBB Country on Twitter. Man, I really appreciate the time. Maybe we can do this again game week. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to have you on to preview Ole Miss maybe that week. All right, that is our show. If you made it to the end, thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. I really appreciate it as always. I think we're going to be back on Friday. I want to do a football-related segment with Chase. Uh, we'll see if that ends up happening. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, pause it right now and go try to shame him somewhere and tell him to do an extra podcast segment with me. Um, it's not like the guy's writing a book or anything cool like that and taking up a ton of time. Anyway, we'll be back uh, toward the uh, tomorrow or Saturday at some point, and then I'll probably go back with Buchanan on Monday with uh, as we kind of finish up the last week of camp and then get more toward a regular Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule like we will be in season. So anyway, I'll have something for you all in the next day or two. Uh, Just uh, stay tuned. Thanks for listening as always.